Hello, and thank you for listening into my podcast, Don't Let God Put You Off the Bible. And for those of you that listened to the first episode, and in an extraordinary display of self-sacrifice, have returned to listen to the second, a special thank you to you. I have committed to improving this podcast with every episode, and not just with regard to my alarmingly low natural talent for this kind of thing, but also in general. And the improvement for this episode is a new microphone. So now I'm not just talking into my phone. Oh yes, I have upped the professionalism. However, it has to be said that when I did a sound test, which consisted of me speaking into the phone and then into the mic, I couldn't tell a jot of difference. But then again, what do I know? Exactly. I hear you all cry to a man. Anyway, enough of the preamble. Let's get on with episode two. What occurred down in Israel 2,000 years ago? Something happened in Israel 2,000 years ago that was so fundamental, so in tune with the changing world of the time, that it went on to be responsible for the crystallisation of a body of scripture that would be the foundation stone for Western civilization, and that is no exaggeration. We all know the body of scripture that was produced, and we know it as the Bible. But as to what happened, what set the ball rolling for what eventually would become the most followed religion in the world, well, that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to identify. It's difficult because the documents we have that give accounts of the relevant period were written decades after the events and almost certainly not by eyewitnesses. The earliest documents we have are the letters of Paul and they are from around the 50s, a couple of decades after the crucifixion of Jesus. Paul never met Jesus and reading his letters he knew very little about him and he mentions only one or two events that later went on to be documented in the Gospels. The Gospels themselves seem to have been written from the 70s onwards, probably by people who lived overseas from Israel and who were working from word of mouth or documents that required translation. So no, we don't have reliable source material that we can take the truth of as read and take it to the bank. We have to be far more discerning with what we take as accurate reportage and what we take as legend, artistic license and political spin. So how can we hope to make any attempt to uncover what really went on in first century Israel that gave birth to the religion that would sweep the world with such mixed consequences? The first thing we have to do is look at the events leading up to and following the time period we are interested in, in order to get a feel for the historical context of the time. What was important to the people at the time? What was the political landscape? and who were the key figures or groups. Coming up to the dawn of the first century, Israel was firmly under the control of the Romans. They had installed their own king, Herod the Great, and they had a firm control over the priesthood of the temple. In fact, the leading Jewish sects of the time, the Sadducees and Pharisees, had adopted a kind of accommodationist posture towards their Roman overlords. What power and influence they still had they had it courtesy of the Romans, so they were keen not to rock the boat in any way. 
They even went as far as to make temple sacrifices on behalf of the emperor to keep the wheels greased. In opposition to this kind of accommodationist attitude were the more fundamental, strict members of the temple priesthood, who felt that sacrifice on behalf of the Roman emperor and similar activities was a pollution of the temple. Some of these priests probably went on to split from their party and form one of the plethora of small cults that grew up standing in direct opposition to the official accommodationist position. Also standing in opposition, in general, was the man on the street. He had issues with the accepting position of the priesthood because it appeared to give an indirect nod of approval to the heavy tax burden that was imposed on them by the Romans. Any rebel that rose up from the crowd to lead a revolt generally became popular amongst the people who, as tends to happen in these kind of situations, would take a nationalistic stance. And, again in general, these rebels were vilified by the priests because if there was one thing the Romans would not tolerate, it was individuals causing unrest. And the reason why? Because disruption to the peace tended to mean disruption to the collection of taxes, and that was a serious business. Essentially, the governor or prefect of Judea had two jobs. Keep the peace and get the taxes collected. It didn't really matter how that was done, as long as it was. So if troublemakers came along, it upset the Romans, and if the Romans were upset, that worried the temple hierarchy. The truth is that small cults have been splintering off from the temple establishment right from the later 2nd century BC through to the 1st century AD. Originally, the Pharisees could have been just such a group, being as their name seems to be derived from the Hebrew word for to separate. However, bear in mind the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the 1st and 2nd centuries BC bore little resemblance to the Sadducees of the New Testament. By then, they had very much become the temple establishment and the status quo suited them just fine. Keep in mind, all these groups were Jewish and there was no such thing termed Christianity at the time. A majority of these splinter groups had a unifying belief of messianism. That is, that the world had been taken over by evil forces, but God was going to send a Messiah to do battle with evil and then restore his own kingdom to earth. You see, the Jewish people had spent centuries being scolded by prophets for not living the way God wished. Each time a new empire dawned and decided to invade Israel and Judea, the prophets would roll their eyes and tell the people it was their own fault. Again! You've been doing that idol worship thing again, haven't you? So God was going to punish them by calling in another nation to round them up and carry them off until they had sorted themselves out. And then, and only then would God's compassion return and he would once again return his people to their homeland. But after a while, uh, which turned out to be a few centuries as it happened, the people got a little sick of constantly being told they had got it all wrong again and again. And this put the job of being a prophet in a precarious situation. If they used the traditional line of we're being invaded again because of you, because of your wretched pagan behaviour, they ran the risk of disaffecting their audience. But of course, the invasions were going to keep coming because that's the way it was in the Middle East, in the Bronze Age and Iron Age. 
How could it be explained away? In the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, which indicates it is written around the 6th century BC, but seems more likely to have been written in the 2nd century BC, was a new style of writing, a fresh spin on an old problem, and it crystallised the new theology that was an effective workaround for the dilemma the prophets found themselves in. It came to be called apocalyptic writing. Daniel has a vision of four beasts. Each one represents a king yet to come. The general consensus of opinion is the beasts represented the Babylonian, Persian, Greek and Roman empires, each one destroying the previous beast. And then, in the final vision, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, in a nutshell, the general message was this. The world had been taken over by evil powers, parenthetically the various empires that kept gate-crashing the Holy Land, and each beast, empire, that arose would destroy the previous beast and be even more evil than anything before. This would happen repeatedly until God finally sends down his Messiah, that is, one like the Son of Man, who would do battle with the final beast, slay it, and then establish God's kingdom on earth. And this one, the empire of God, would last forever. Gone would be the time of invading forces, because only good would exist. This solved things nicely for the prophets. Constantly being trodden on wasn't the fault of the people of Israel and Judea. It was just the fact that evil had taken over the world. So just stick tight, keep your faith, and God will come to rescue the world from the clutches of evil. This theology really laid the foundation for the belief in an expected Messiah, a final apocalyptic battle between the forces of good and evil, and the triumph of good preparing the stage for God to come and set up what would be the final perfect kingdom here on earth. By the turn of the first century, the expectation had become, as they say, almost palpable. The oppressive Romans were taxing people heavily, the royalty of the country had been handpicked by the Romans, the governors sent in to take charge of Judea were to get progressively more antagonistic to the people as time went on, and the priesthood seemed to be colluding with this cushy little setup. A Messiah-led revolution seemed to be the only way the people were ever going to get free from such a stranglehold. Would-be messiahs began to appear, attracting large bands of followers with the promise of an overthrow of the Romans or freedom in some way. Some of these were quite extreme and prepared to do anything it took to oust the present temple hierarchy because of the way they had, in their eyes, polluted the temple, which was, of course, the very epicentre of the Jewish religion. It was God's home. It's worth mentioning at this point that the community at Qumran that was responsible for writing the Dead Sea Scrolls felt exactly the same way about the temple priesthood, and they had been around since the 2nd century BC. They had even written a scroll describing exactly how the battle between good and evil would finally play out, 
going right down into battleground detail. So the expectation of a Messiah had been fermenting for quite some period, and by the time we get to the period we are interested in, the lid was most definitely starting to blow. So by the time of King Herod the Great's death in around 4 BC, this new type of leadership had started to incubate characters ready for the fight. Later, Josephus would go on to call them zealots, but initially they were probably what he referred to as the fourth philosophy, a people who had an inviolable attachment to freedom, he says, and would not let any rule over them. Unlikely, the most extreme group would later emerge, the Zakari, so called after the short curved dagger they would conceal under their robes as they prowled the streets and markets, eavesdropping on conversations, ready to discreetly plunge their weapons into an unsuspecting victim heard voicing opinions that did not agree with theirs. And then they would melt into the crowd and join in with the general astonishment at the unfolding drama. Sounds familiar. So generally speaking, by this time you could divide individual groups into two camps. Those that were accepting of the Herodians and the Romans and those that were not and those that were not had a strong vein of messianism at their core. This could be described as the Palestinian messianic movement, and it is from this that messiahs of the time, including Jesus, could well have emerged from. Any evidence for this, I hear you thinking? Well, who do all the Gospels have as a close buddy of Jesus? John the Baptist and he was most definitely anti-Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodian. And his main message is that there is a greater one than he yet to come. In Matthew, he warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees that any tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, that's a messianic message, if ever there was one. And who baptises Jesus? John. And by the way, this is quite an interesting example of how we can work out what is probably legend and what is not in the New Testament. The writers of the Gospel have been some embarrassment about the fact that John, a lowly human, actually baptises Jesus, by then believed to be the Son of God. There is an awkward conversation between John and Jesus that tries to smooth over this strange anomaly. But if it really didn't fit that well with the message of the Gospels, then why not simply say nothing about it? It is probably because it was so well known that it actually happened. It had been an event included in the verbal communication of the Jesus story right from the start, so it couldn't very well be left out of an account of the life and times of Jesus, because everybody knew it happened. It is likely to be based on a true event because it does not fit with the general message of the Gospels, and yet, there it is. Well, what about when Jesus says, Give to God what is God's, and to Caesar what is Caesar's? Doesn't that show him as accepting of Roman rule, which doesn't exactly fit with the picture of Jesus being a hardline messianist? Well, this is an example in reverse of the logic behind the John the Baptist story. With regard to the general thrust of the Gospels, this is exactly what you would expect Jesus to say. Remember, when the Gospels were being written, the Romans had destroyed the Jewish temple and were not in the mood for dealing with any more troublemakers. 
The Christians were engaged in a war of words with the Jews and the Judeo-Christians who were thought to have adopted a middle ground between Jews and Christians, i.e. Jesus was a Messiah but he was not the Son of God. But anyway, the Christians were dead set on proving that they were the inheritors of the Old Testament promises. They trawled the scriptures for what could be interpreted as direct prophecies of the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament was their scripture because it foretold of their Messiah. If they could convince the Romans of this and stay on side with them, then it would make a life a lot easier for them. This is because if you could prove that your beliefs, your religion had ancestry and had an ancient provenance, then the Romans tended to give certain allowances for your behaviour and not impose on you certain things that everyone else was expected to do. You gain certain rights. So the Christians had plenty of foes, but if they could keep the Romans on side, it would make things a lot easier. So Jesus saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's in the New Testament, is no surprise. Taxes were a dangerous subject to start messing with. Running on the same lines, notice how the Gospels shift the blame for the crucifixion of Jesus from the Romans to the Jews. This really did kill two birds with one stone. It showed the Romans that Christians had no ill will against them, and also it painted the Jews in a very black light. So we always have to bear in mind that the Gospel writers, writing after the destruction of the Temple, had an agenda. And that agenda was to survive, and to survive they needed to show the Romans that they were no threat. As soon as the temple had been destroyed, it was over for the Pharisees and Sadducees in their present incarnation, and so too anything to do with traditional Judaism. Post-war, the Romans actually set up a particularly compliant Jewish priest in a synagogue who would go on to develop Rabbinic Judaism, which had all the messianic and apocalyptic tendencies amputated, leaving a non-threatening, compliant religion. This was all the Romans were prepared to tolerate. Now here's the key point. If the roots of Christianity were formed from the zealot, hardline, messianist branch of Judaism that had flourished at the beginning of the first century, then the Romans were almost certainly not going to tolerate that either. If the new cult was to survive, it would have to change, and it would have to change fast. So, here's the timeline to make it clearer. From the anti-establishment factions of Judaism, people like John the Baptist start appearing. Jesus, a charismatic preacher and ethical teacher, comes to prominence, and some Jews come to believe he is the expected Messiah. When he brings his brand of Judaism directly to Jerusalem and the Temple, Pilate is in no mood for yet another agitator to start whipping up the crowds into rebel action. So he has him summarily crucified. And that should have been that, as with all other would-be messiahs of the time. But there was a sting in this particular messiah story. Some of his followers came to believe that they had seen Jesus, who had been resurrected from the dead. This proved two things. First, he was the messiah because God had brought him back to life. He had triumphed over death. And two, the beginning of the end times had come. One of the messianic beliefs was that in the final apocalypse, the dead would be brought back to life. 
you were not going to be able to live a sinful, evil life and get away with it before Judgment Day by simply dying. No, you were going to be brought back to life and made to answer for your sins, or conversely, rewarded for your virtues. And this was it. This was the beginning of the raising of the dead. Jesus was the first fruits. The end times were really coming. You can see why the reported resurrection of a Messiah figure would have so galvanised his followers and given the movement such huge momentum. So here we have the original core believers and apostles energised and anticipating an imminent revolution. From Josephus and other early writers, it seems certain that after Jesus left the scene, in whichever way we choose to believe, this core group came to be led by James, the brother of Jesus. In my first podcast, I gave a very brief case for the existence of James as a real brother of Jesus. I may do a later podcast concentrating on this subject, but for now I will state that, again, Josephus and other early writers make the leadership of what came to be called the Jerusalem, Jerusalem, sorry, Jerusalem Assembly by James almost certainly beyond the doubt of any unbiased mind. So there we have it. The original group of apostles, accompanied by a growing group of believers, led by a man so respected it seems he is known as James the Just or James the Righteous. They were a cutting that had been taken from an apocalyptic, anti-Roman, anti-Herodian and most certainly Jewish cult or cults. Keep an eye on this original group and note they remain in Palestine. Enter Paul. Now, remember, Paul's genuine letters are the only real primary source we have to glean any clues as to what was really going on a little time on from the crucifixion. Paul is going out preaching a faith that seems to have very different emphases than that which the Jerusalem Assembly seemed focused on. He was not railing against the corrupt priesthood of the temple or the temple pollution by the Herodians and Romans. In fact, he seems to be really quite matey with the Romans. Read the end of Romans and read the long list of people he wishes to greet in Rome. There is some evidence that even points towards Paul having been related in some way to the Herodian family. But that's not for now. The point is that Paul's whole emphasis is completely different from that of the Jerusalem Assembly. His key message is, believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and you will be redeemed. And, when it comes, live happily and forever in God's kingdom. A message clearly never preached by Jesus himself. James and his assembly are still very much Jewish and intent on doing right by God's laws. Paul seems to be willing to let people bypass the law. Don't worry about the circumcision or dietary laws. Just believe in Jesus and your faith will save you. In 1 Corinthians 19-20, he says, and I paraphrase here, I am a Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to the Gentiles, I am weak to the weak, anything to win people over so they may be saved. The Jerusalem Assembly was a splinter group from the traditional temple establishment, but still thoroughly Jewish. Paul adopts their original leader, but transforms much of his message into one that is easy to practice and appealing to many. Christianity, as we know it today, is beginning to be formed. Paul did eventually go to Rome, 
under a kind of loose house arrest, but it really is impossible to tell what influence he had on the Christian groups already established there. We know they were already established because in Paul's letter to them it makes that point quite clear. They probably weren't called Christians then, but it's a convenient term for understanding purposes. And, of course, it would eventually be the Roman Church that would go on to cement the Christian creeds and doctrines still read out to congregations today. So there seems to have been a series of events all contributing but none solely responsible for the development of Christianity. In the last section of this podcast, I'm going to invite you into the After the Podcast podcast bar where we can share a drink and slot the pieces of the puzzle we have looked at together to show the real picture. So go charge your glass and I'll see you on the other side of the incidental music. Cheers. Welcome to the After the Podcast podcast bar. And I have here a rather nice crystal cut glass holding a generous splash of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey. I don't normally buy the Black Label, but in view of the fact that I'm bringing to a conclusion the second podcast, I thought it reason enough to celebrate. You see, I originally envisioned these podcasts as me sat there in a rather sophisticated way, glass of whiskey in one hand, smoking jacket on, relaying pearls of wisdom. But what it's actually turned out to be is a Herculean effort, consisting mainly of me staring at the computer, crying tears of blood. The challenge is that I'm appealing to an audience who, while not having an extensive knowledge of the Bible, have an interest in the history and mysteries of the Bible, not particularly the religion. And the challenge of distilling down the essential information needed to understand what's being talked about into the size of a reasonable podcast is proving interesting. However, enough of me and my woes, let's get back to it. So here's the course of events pinned together with what was the far harsher reality of the time that they are set against, certainly than the Gospels care to detail. And before I go on, I know I sometimes repeat things, but it is important for me to consolidate in your mind that the timeline of the Scriptures does a big loop back on itself. What I mean by that is, by the time the Gospels are written, supposedly at the time of Jesus, there had actually been 35 to 40 years of further events that had happened, and these were playing heavily on what went into them. We are getting the story of Jesus from a group of people who had developed a religion that, by the time of writing, was totally different from anything Jesus himself preached, because of world events. If you have grasped this already, I apologise, but for anyone still pondering this, I'm trying to explain things in different ways in order to give you several reference points to the same facts, so to speak. So we are at the turn of the first century, expectation of something happening, some kind of divine intervention to overthrow the corrupt, compliant, ruling priesthood of the temple is bubbling over. A new kind of leadership emerges, messianic and rebellious. 
charismatic preachers spring up promising freedom from the yoke of Roman and Herodian rule. John the Baptist is one of these angry young men. Jesus and his brothers adopt this apocalyptic messianic message and begin to preach that final violent battle between good and evil. It's imminent and the old temple will be torn asunder and God's own everlasting temple will be set in its place. Jesus seems to emerge as a particularly strong figurehead in this new philosophy, as Joe Spitzevers appears to call it. He comes to town, that is Jerusalem, at Passover, a particularly volatile time and one that the Romans are acutely aware can spark herd violence and panic should anything set the Jews off. His behaviour becomes increasingly worrying to the point where he may have even been overheard predicting the destruction of the temple. Mark 13.2 The Roman prefect, unsurprisingly, decides he needs to be dealt with and, by the way, it was well within the power of the prefect to have someone dispatched at the drop of a thumb. Criminal law was quite loose. Decisions of punishment could be made on the spot and there was no appeal process. As so long as it didn't cause too much trouble, do what you need to do. Anything to keep the rule of peace and the taxes rolling in. I will just mention here, they may have been a follower of Jesus who was particularly keen for the final battle to kick off and, in his eyes, gave it a little nudge of encouragement by manoeuvring the main players into confrontation, so to speak. We have come to know this character as Judas Iscariot. Iscariot could be a scrambling of Sicari, and if he was known as Judas Sicari, then he certainly would have been all out for a fight. He probably didn't betray Jesus in the way that has come down to us, but very well could have acted in a way that brought forward the confrontation that he thought was coming anyway. He was impatient. Let's get on with it, Jesus. Let's do it. But the story behind Judas Iscariot is another whole different story that we can't get into now. Can we? Can we get into that now? No, we can't get into that now. That would easily see off the entire bottle of Johnny Walker. So we'll just press on. So Jesus is crucified. And at some point after a few of his followers believe they have seen him risen from the dead, he comes to be seen as the divine Messiah who is set to return again very soon to overthrow the wicked corrupt establishment, the Herodians and the Romans. But in the meantime, James will lead the Jerusalem community who are very much Jewish, very much steeped in the law of Torah and very much apocalyptical. Some Jews begin to see the writing on the wall for their religion, the new philosophy of a belief in an overthrow of the Romans held by an increasing body of militant zealots and fundamentalists is not going to end well and in order for Judaism to survive it will simply have to adapt and mellow. Cue Paul. Paul is an ex-Pharisee as he states himself and has Roman citizenship, as claimed by Acts, but not stated in his letters, interestingly. He sees that a kind of split has already occurred with a growing band of people believing Jesus to be the coming Messiah. So he takes this new belief on, because it is a whole lot easier to mould something that is new and still forming, than it is to overhaul a belief system that is steeped in custom and antiquity like Judaism. Although, at this point, the two things are still very much tangled together.
and this is where, with great finesse, Paul turns the religion of Jesus into the religion about Jesus. In some of his letters, you can quite clearly see in his writing how he is trying to lay out new rules for the ever-increasing number of Gentiles joining the new movement that he is forging as he goes. No, the law should not be abandoned, but you don't need it for salvation. No, of course it doesn't matter what you eat, but if it offends certain people, then don't eat food sacrificed to idols, if only for their sake. He's trying to keep hold of the heritage of the Old Testament scriptures, while at the same time doing his best to make a kind of Judaism light, if you like, a much less demanding way of life to follow, and easy to adopt faith. Remember, Paul says he will appear to be whatever he needs to to win people over. He runs the race to win, he says. So he does see himself in some kind of competition. Paul is very successful at this, and Christianity as we know it is born. Or to put it another way, overseas Christianity is born. The Christianity of Judea and James's Jerusalem assembly is very different from this overseas brand which becomes distinctly non-Jewish. You now have Palestinian messianism in Judea and Paul's soon to become Christianity overseas. We must always bear in mind that the earliest gospel was written a good 20 to 30 years after Paul's letters and they were probably written by Greek or Romans, so their thrust is going to be strictly, you fucking cunt. So Jesus is crucified, and at some point, after a few of his followers believe that they have seen him risen from the dead, he comes to be seen as the divine Messiah, who is set to return again very soon to overthrow the wicked, corrupt establishment, the Herodians and the Romans. But in the meantime, James will lead the Jerusalem community who are very much Jewish, very much steeped in the law of the Torah, and very much apocalyptical. Some Jews begin to see the writing on the wall for their religion, the new philosophy of a belief in an overthrow of the Romans held by an increasing body of militant zealots and fundamentalists is not going to end well, and in order for Judaism to survive, it will simply have to adapt and mellow. Q. Paul. Paul is an ex-Pharisee, as he states himself, and has Roman citizenship, as claimed by Acts, but not stated in his letters, interestingly. He sees that a kind of split has already occurred with a growing band of people believing Jesus to be the coming Messiah. So he takes this new belief on, because it's a whole lot easier to mould something that is new and still forming than it is to overhaul a belief system that is steeped in custom and antiquity like Judaism, although at this point the two things are still very much tangled together. And this is where, with great finesse, Paul turns the religion of Jesus into the religion about Jesus. In some of his letters, you can quite clearly see in his writings how he is trying to lay out new rules for the ever-increasing number of Gentiles joining the new movement that he is forging as he goes. No, the law should not be abandoned, but you don't need it for salvation. No, of course it doesn't matter what you eat. But if it offends certain people, then don't eat food sacrificed to idols, if only for their sake. 
He's trying to keep hold of the heritage of the Old Testament scriptures whilst at the same time doing his best to make a kind of Judaism light, if you like, a much less demanding way of life to follow, an easy to adopt faith. Remember, Paul says he will appear to be whatever he needs to be to win people over. He runs the race to win, he says, so he does see himself in some kind of competition. Paul is very successful at this and Christianity as we know it is born, or to put it another way, overseas Christianity is born. The Christianity of Judea and James's Jerusalem assembly is very different from this overseas brand, which becomes distinctly non-Jewish. You now have Palestinian messianism in Judea and Paul's soon to become Christianity overseas. We must always bear in mind that the earliest Gospels were written years after Paul's letters and they were probably written by Greeks or Romans so their thrust is going to be strictly, as I have called it, overseas Christianity. The Gospel writers are writing after the split and transformation and that is why they are presenting a far more peace-loving, Roman-friendly picture of Jesus. Going on from here, when the Romans had finally taken all the trouble they were going to take from the rebellious Jews, they set a siege on Jerusalem, killed thousands and destroyed the temple. The only kind of Judaism that was now going to be tolerated after this was going to be a very passive, cooperative type. Those zealot groups and other fundamentalist factions that weren't killed off seem to have fled into what is now the area of Iraq. But one particularly, shall we say, politically savvy priest, who was head of the Sanhedrin at the time, a kind of priestly court, one Johannan ben Zakkai, manages to ingratiate himself with the Romans, and he is allowed to move the seat of Judaism away from Jerusalem and set up what was to become Rabbinic Judaism, a far more compliant strain of Judaism, and the only one that the Romans were prepared to live with, as I mentioned earlier. So this completes a two-pronged split. Overseas Christianity breaks away from the more Jewish, hardline messianism of James and his assembly, the outcome of which is James and his assembly are destroyed, and overseas Christianity survives and flourishes, and the apocalyptic zealot factions of Judaism either flee after the Jewish war with the Romans, or get killed leaving only the moderate Roman accommodating Jews left in Judea. What occurred in Palestine in the first century? I believe there was a realisation by the Jewish movers and shakers of the time, and I include Paul in this, that their religion's days were numbered if they didn't drop the aggressive act towards the Romans and stop being so nationalistic. There were a number of fractures, and these being represented by different groups, and when the Jewish war finally comes, only two groups survive. Rabbinic Judaism and Overseas Christianity, both very watered-down, more passive versions of their original forms. In the first century AD, Judaism evolved to survive, but it just so happened it evolved along two very different lines. A final interesting observation is that if you look at the historical Jesus, he seems to have been more closely aligned to the sect of the type that got wiped out. But when you look at Jesus of the Gospels and the New Testament, 
he is transposed to being a far more moderate, more accepting of foreign rule, and thus a much better fit as part of the surviving victorious religion. Here, I'd just like to make it clear that this is not my independent thinking, but a kind of weaving together of various different strains of thought from various scholars. I have simplified many of the situations discussed to make the ideas digestible to intelligent but casual listeners. But you know, so much of world history was forged in the twisting of huge ironies. I really am inclined to believe that the historical Jesus that has come to stand for peace and acceptance of all is actually a mirror image of the historical figure. So, I'd like to thank you for selecting to spend some of your time listening to me, lurching almost incoherently through a subject that demands coherency. Again, if you were one of those who listened to my first podcast and have returned, a special thank you to you. And in general, to everyone, if you have any particular area of the Bible you are curious to take a look at, just let me know. I may well set about strangling it with my bare tongue for you. How about that for an offer you can't refuse? Anyway, until next time, cheers and do take care.